You're listening to In Conversation from the Educational Freedom Institute. Twitter accounts, YouTube accounts, and Facebook accounts. Uh, hello, everybody. This is uh, Corey DeAngelis uh, at the Educational Freedom Institute with uh, my co-host, Matthew Nielsen, who's the founder of the Educational Freedom Institute. We're joined today with uh, two very special guests who wrote a fantastic book together. Uh, they've co-authored this book that I have on my desk right now. It's called Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. And if you look at the back of the book, uh, this guy, Corey DeAngelis, is on the back because I provided a very positive review of the book because it's such a, a great book. I'll put the uh, link, the Amazon link in the comments for everybody to go check it out. Uh, but our special guests are, first we have Kate Hardiman. She is a JD candidate at Georgetown Law School. And then we have Clint Bollock, who's an associate justice at the Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, so thank you guys so much for, for joining us today. Thanks, Corey. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the blurb, Corey, and, and uh, really appreciate being on. Sorry you can't see me. <laughs> yeah, and so we had some technical difficulties for everybody wondering why there's just a random square in the corner. That's Clint Bollock, uh, uh, but uh, he's still there. A random uh, square. <laughs> he's still there, and he can uh, respond to questions and stuff. And um, But yeah, let's just start out really... Um, with the first question that we pretty much asked all of our guests, uh, could you guys give us just a quick, you know, I already introduced you as far as your formal titles go, but just a quick background on how, how you got interested in education policy and then maybe move into uh, what really motivated you to write this book in particular. Well, I guess I'll go first and mine's a lot longer than Kate since she's only like about a 10th my age, but um, <laughs> uh, I had planned to be a school teacher and when all, in fact, I still have lifetime teacher certification in my home state of New Jersey, um, but uh, student teaching really opened my eyes to how uh, horrific uh, the situation is for so many of our kids in our country. And this is decades ago now. So obviously it's only gotten worse for millions of school children since then. And I decided instead of uh, becoming a teacher and, and trying to deal with the problem one student at a time, uh, that I would go into law. And uh, during college, I studied uh, Milton Friedman and learned about the idea of school vouchers and uh, thought to myself, when I become a lawyer, uh, I want to go out and defend voucher programs. Trouble was, there were no voucher programs. <laughs> uh, and so it was a while before I had that opportunity. And I ended up uh, uh, co-founding the Institute for Justice. My colleagues and I um, litigated dozens of school choice cases around the country and uh, I really fell in love with the idea of, of school choice um, and have always been passionately committed to educational opportunities, particularly for low-income kids. Um, more recently, I joined the Arizona Supreme Court uh, almost exactly five years ago, and um, I've seen it from a very different perspective. Uh, almost every major criminal defendant that comes before my court um, is the product of a, um, an education system that never gave them a chance. And so um, 
Uh, so Kate and I got to uh, know each other a few years ago. And uh, as we were talking, we realized that no one had written a soup to nuts <laughs> book on education reform. That is, uh, what would we do comprehensively in uh, recreating uh, a school system that would meet the needs of the 21st century and take advantage of the incredible tools available to us in the 21st century. And we decided to do just that. And I couldn't have picked a better uh, co-author. Thanks, Clint. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, like Clint, uh, also started my career as a teacher. Um, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame and pursued a two-year master's program also through Notre Dame called the Alliance for Catholic Education. Uh, and through that program, I taught for two years at a uh, inner city Catholic school uh, in Chicago and taught uh, all four grades by the time I left, um, so nine through 12, English and religion, and absolutely loved it. Um, and that I had interest in school choice before teaching because I had written my senior thesis at Notre Dame on it, but really just seeing um, the, the fact that, you know, the students at my school were utilizing choice was remarkable. And I would just get these horror stares from them when I would ask them, you know, what would your life be like if you went to a school in your neighborhood? And they would just look at me and shake their heads and it just really left an impact on me. And I loved my time teaching. Um, after teaching, I decided to go to law school, which had kind of always been the plan um, and ended up at Georgetown. Uh, and I decided to do the evening program at Georgetown. So I go to law school at night and during the day I work for a constitutional litigation firm. Um, and I've gotten to do a little bit of ed work, but more broadly, some religious <laughs> and other constitutional issues. Uh, so that's been a really great experience. And Clint has just been an invaluable mentor. Uh, I really hope long-term to follow in his footsteps, not necessarily into the judiciary, but um, hopefully as a, a litigator for educational choice and educational change. So how did you guys connect? How did you meet each other? Well, I can tell that story because it, it's kind of interesting, but what, uh, Clint gave a talk um, when I was a senior at Notre Dame and the way I remember it, at least I, you know, walked up to him after the talk and gave him my senior thesis um, <laughs> and that led to a coffee meeting and we kept in touch since then. Um, but I don't know if Clint has a different version of events. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's pretty much it. I actually, I think you had reached out before the talk uh, because you were writing in part about either Milwaukee or Cleveland, right? Yes, that's correct. And so we ended up getting together um, uh, after my talk and staying in touch after then. That's great. Excellent. So, so let's jump right into it. Give us the the lowdown on the book. What you know? What's you know, maybe just real quick, one or two sentences. What 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 got you motivated in it? And then what are your your overall? What's the overall thrust of the book and the overall findings of the book? Well. Um, Basically, it begins with the question, what would a K-12 education system look like today if we were designing it from scratch with absolutely no preconceptions, but with all of the amazing technological tools we have um, at our disposal? 
And the answer to keep it to two to two sentences <laughs> is it wouldn't look anything like our current system. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, what would you add to that, Kate? What would you add to the answer for Corey's question? Yeah, so I think what we tried to do in the book was look toward, you know, systems that are doing it really well. In the last kind of takeaway chapter, we look at Florida and we say, you know, what is Florida doing really well? Um, but we, we try to pull together all of the school choice programs out there and really break it down, not necessarily for a policy wonk, but for a parent. Um, and we want, you know, the everyday parent to be able to understand, you know, why is my kid's system the way it is? Um, what are, you know, how could it be different? Um, and hopefully, try to motivate some grassroots, uh, you know, desire for change through that. And one thing to add, it, it is not primarily a, a school choice book. Um, one of my motivations for writing it is uh, after all of my years of, of defending school choice programs and helping make the world safe for school choice, um, I realized that I had really not made much of a contribution in terms of reforming uh, the system that most of the kids are, are a part of and will continue to be a part of for the foreseeable future. So um, certainly many of the, the things that we've seen in school choice um, are, are transferable, especially charter schools, uh, to mainstream public schools. Um, but even with, with most voucher programs, for example, most kids are still in you know, 30 kid classrooms in rows, just like they were at the end of the 19th century. So uh, we really want, we really went at this from a bottom up perspective and asked ourselves, what are the obstacles that need to be removed, um, unshackled, so to speak, in order for mainstream public schools to become dynamic institutions, um, student focused institutions, um, nimble institutions. And uh, that that pretty much forms the focus of the book. Yeah, I really like how you guys started out with that thought experiment. Could you go into a little more, more details on that? How, how would the education system look? What are some mm -hmm. parts of the education system that, that you guys think are particularly, um, just don't make any sense from that standpoint? Are there any um, things that you see with the traditional public schools, for example, that that are either shackling them down or um, uh, just not allowing for innovation? Well, I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me and, and Clint was really instrumental in driving this part of the book, but um, the idea of, you know, what to do with the traditional district school, because, you know, even though there's been kind of a mass exodus during COVID as much as we've seen, you know, in recent years, into private schools and homeschools, the fact remains that most kids are still in these district schools. And and COVID really put it on, you know, display that these things are just not flexible and they can't meet the needs of their constituents. Um, and it's just been a real challenge with the virtual learning. So I think the the biggest insight to me through all of this was that we can actually, you know, attempt to reform the public district school system by making it more of a community school model which basically resembles a charter school in the sense of, you know, there's individual school control at each school rather than, you know, these aggregate districts where 
there's a superintendent and there's all these layers of bureaucracy. Um, and I know, Corey, you've done, you know, a good bit of writing about the bureaucracy in the public school system and, you know, the kind of intermediary of the unions and all of these things that kind of impede individual principal and school decisions um, for constituents. So I think that's really what was so huge to me, especially after the COVID crisis. So yeah. you said, oh, go ahead, Clint. Oh, I was going to add, the United States has more bureaucracy in its education system than Russia. Russia prides itself in its bureaucracy, right? Um, and we have so many levels of bureaucracy, all of it siphoning off funding and all of it adding uh, uh, bureaucracy and, and prescription. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> the revolution of the last uh, 40 years in, in technology has been all about eliminating the middleman, allowing consumers uh, to interact uh, directly with people who provide services and goods. And that has hardly happened in the educational sector. And uh, eliminating school districts would uh, save 50 cents out of, <laughs> out of every, every education dollar and remove a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and, and allow the people who have the greatest stake in the success of the system to have far greater power over how those resources are spent. Yes, yeah, so uh, before you jump in, Matthew, that just reminded me of uh, Ben Scafferty at Kennesaw State University. I think he calls it the 13 layer cake <laughs> There's 13 layers of bureaucracy in his state, in Georgia, for example, uh, between um, uh, when just trying to run a, a traditional public school. So I can see, you know, that like all, all of the regulations that are entrenched in the system. Matthew, you, do you have a specific question? Uh, yeah. Well, Kate, you said something interesting. You used a, a word in particular as you were explaining, as you were giving that answer. You said that the public school system, traditional public school system, can't meet the needs of all of their constituents. You used the word can't. And, and I think that actually is true. I think that's the right word to use. Um, and I think that's actually maybe a, a call for um, some understanding and, and for, some, for some forgiving to the traditional public school system because they truly can't meet the needs. If they won't, that's a different situation, right? I mean, then then we're talking about something different. But look, there are, what I think the latest number that I've seen is 53 million students in K-12 currently, uh, grades K through 12 across the country. Uh, that's 53 million different kids. And for one system to be able to meet the needs of all of those kids, I, I think is unreasonable. So I, I think it was a, a good word to use there and the, and the right one. But I'm wondering, based on your guys' answer and Clint in particular, your your last response there, did you guys look? You, you use the figure fifty percent. Is that are you ballparking that? Is that pretty close? Fifty cents on every dollar. Um, it's, it's about yeah. it's about the right figure here in Arizona. We actually have um, every year our state auditor uh, looks at those numbers because we actually passed. Uh, well, we've passed a, a number of measures that require increased funding to go into the classroom. And uh, part of that is having the auditor look at where the money is being spent. And I know this is going to be a complete shock to you, but it doesn't get there. 
And uh, so we've been at, at roughly 50 uh, cents for a very long time. Obviously, it varies from state to state, and uh, we're not always counting um, uh, apples to apples. Um, but uh, but I think that's that's roughly the the right number. Yeah, that's interesting because that's big. That's why it's interesting. <laughs> so yeah I, wanted, yeah, I wanted to ask about specific reforms that you guys think are especially pertinent going forward, um, uh, just based on your synopsis and everything you've you've been looking at. One thing I would just follow up my last comment with is that I actually think the hardest reform that we are proposing is the community school model for the district schools. I mean, I think there are the most impediments to making that a reality and there are fewer impediments, though still some, to making you know more choice programs available, for example. So, I mean, we already see that choice is becoming more attractive after COVID. I think it was uh, Georgia Governor Kemp today said that he was going to start reimbursing families, um, you know, who have expended dollars to educate their kids during the pandemic. Um, so I, I think there's more political capital for uh, different types of school choice programs. It's less, you know, legally problematic now that there's, uh, you know, that Espinoza case was decided at the Supreme Court. Um, not that it was even legally problematic before that. Yeah, give us the lowdown. Hey, give us the lowdown. A lot of people say school choice is unconstitutional. You're using public dollars at private <laughs> religious schools. That's a separation of church and state issue. That's a that's your you're violating the establishment clause of the U.S. Constitution. What are your responses to that? Clint, do you want to take that first? <laughs> well, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court resolved that issue by the resounding issue, by the resounding vote of five to four. Uh, <laughs> so it's certainly never safe. I would, if I had to guess, and I'm knocking wood when I say this, I, I assume that uh, we perhaps have a vote to spare on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, at, the, at the moment. Uh, the greater impediment, uh, legally in recent years has been state constitutional provisions, uh, but the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, recently held that, uh, uh, that those provisions which uh, forbid aid to sectarian schools cannot be used to discriminate against uh, religious schools. So at the moment, um, the legal terrain, plus, you know, add to that uh, the decision um, the recent decision holding that uh, that teachers cannot be forced to uh, provide dues to um, uh, to unions, uh, those things really the the legal terrain right at the moment um, is better for school choice and uh, mechanisms like school choice than than ever before. Are you looking up the Janus case? Well, uh, yeah. How do you know when I'm looking up stuff all the time? I'm sending. I'm sending <laughs> that, into. The, he's, he's, he's got me figured out. I'm. I'm. I'm posting the uh, Espinoza case in the comments for our listeners. Um, it's the latest our, case on school choice, 2025-4 decision in favor of uh, school choice this year. So, yeah. Th thanks for addressing that, Clint. Kate, do you have anything to add on on Espinoza specific or any additional? Uh, comments besides what Clint already added? Uh, I, I 
think Clint basically covered it. The only thing I would add is that there is a case um, pending right now in the Tennessee Supreme Court that has to deal with their ESA program. Um, and the Court of Appeals actually struck it down uh, as unconstitutional under the state constitution. So uh, it could be that there's another, you know, push to the Supreme Court because if I, I believe it's IJ handling that case. Um, mm -hmm. And if they lose in the Tennessee Supreme Court, it is likely that they will seek cert in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, yeah, and that, and that Tennessee case, for listeners, just to be clear, is is has to do something with their state constitution called the Home Rule. And they're arguing that uh, the state is forcing particular localities to, to use this program. Uh, and so they're saying since it's not a statewide program, it's unconstitutional. But the same people saying that would never argue for a statewide program. They're just trying to use this as a way to get rid of the program. And it has, doesn't have uh, much of anything to do with this religious schools aspect uh, from what I can tell. Um, go, yeah, going forward uh, in the book, I saw that you guys cited some evidence about school choice or were there any particular studies that jumped out to you guys, you know, glossing over the evidence that, that you found to be especially compelling? That's Corey fishing for a compliment. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there I was this Corey, one study that this one guy did. <laughs> I think Corey is the most cited source in our book. <laughs> I'm joking. He was something that I oh, actually Corey did this piece of information, but I remember um, Clint relied heavily in one of the chapters that he ran point on uh, about what our system would look like if we didn't have so much administrative bloat um, and the billions of dollars more or millions of dollars more, I the figures escape me, that we could be paying teachers if we didn't have so much district bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, so just going back to that original point about eliminating the middleman of the district bureaucracy, um, you know, thinking about how we would reallocate those dollars if we had the cost savings there. And for that, listeners, I think that's back to the staffing surge by Ben mm -hmm. Scafidi I'm putting into the comments. But he does, I think he did uh, do those estimations for each individual state in that report. So I, I recommend um, everybody to go check out that link. It's at edchoice.org. It's a think tank that used to be called the Friedman Foundation uh, for School Choice. Um, but uh, yeah, and Ben Scafidi, he's actually an advisory board member at the Educational Freedom Institute. So everybody go check it out. And Corey, Corey, just to return to an earlier point uh, that relates to what you were just saying, um, Kate had mentioned before that that uh, moving to community uh, schools, uh, which are essentially charter schools, but but run as uh, by the by the government uh, with uh, school based boards, uh, she mentioned that she thought that might be the toughest reform, um, and. She may be right, but the other side of that is that if this money is freed up from bureaucracy, there will be tremendous additional money available for salaries. We will be able to pay teachers like the professionals we hope they are. And um, that's going to be attractive <laughs> to a lot of teachers, possibly even to teacher unions in, in some instances. Uh, there's no lo love lost in a lot of the large school districts between the districts 
and the unions. Um, and this is certainly one of those issues where uh, there could be a, a divergence of interest. Now, along with that, uh, however, it is absolutely uh, essential uh, that we, we pay teachers for performance. Uh, simply giving every teacher in the system another $20,000 means that we're giving a $20,000 raise to the very, very best teacher and to the very, very worst teacher. So we have got to uh, give these community schools the ability to hire and fire and uh, to provide, whether it's performance incentives or uh, differential pay uh, based on, uh, on expertise. Uh, but certainly, and this was one of the elements, Kate mentioned Florida before, this is one of the elements driving the, the Florida success is giving teachers uh, financial rewards for, for tangible accomplishments. For example, the number of minorities passing AP exams. As soon as that happened, guess what happened? The number of minority kids passing AP tests soared. And uh, there's, no, there's really no magic to this. It's taking the principles that apply so well in every other aspect of our economy and applying it to the most important service that our economy uh, should provide. It's so the Peter Drucker quote, right? What you measure gets managed or what gets <laughs> measured gets managed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a few people that, that gets attributed to it in different ways, I think. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, you know, I think the listeners might be confused a little bit about community schools and the and the, the exact definition of this. You, you guys mentioned that they're kind of like charter schools. So let me know if I if I get this right. Are, are they? Well, actually, I, I don't know. Are they privately managed or run or, or, or run by the government is, is my main question. And then secondly, uh, from what I can tell, they, they wouldn't be residentially assigned. They, you, you would be able to choose them. And then I guess the difference with, with from charters would be that from what I'm hearing from you guys is that you'd have a, a school board as well. So, so we didn't get too granular in our definition because we think that there could be all a, a whole variety of types of community schools. But the main thing is that every state requires, every state constitution requires the state to provide a system of education. And this would be that. Um, and the way that it would be uh, performed is uh, that the state would be responsible for funding uh, education. Um, and we, we haven't even really talked about education savings accounts yet, but, <laughs> but we think that it's very important for the, the funding to enter the school through the students rather than uh, directly from the state, other than perhaps capital expenditures and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the state would set minimum um, standards for education and would also monitor education performance. Uh, but the schools themselves would be run by, um, by boards, which would be public institutions. Um, and those boards would have uh, uh, within the infrastructure of, of the state, 
um, would have complete authority over hiring, firing, spending, educational mission, etc. So they would very much resemble um, charter schools, but they would be state schools. Okay, yeah, that, that makes more sense. That's uh, good. And just so you know, the people are commenting here and there. I just want to throw that we didn't say this at the beginning, but people are commenting here and there and asking questions. So uh, maybe at the end, we'll throw up a couple of questions for you guys and you can try to answer them. Sounds good. The only other thing I would add to Clint's uh, community schools description, which was was very good, um, is this idea that I, I've been seeing more and more about how really the issue with unions is potentially that they are like, uh, you know, the district schools themselves part of a giant bureaucracy. And we have these unions at the national level, but really it might be more helpful to have, you know, unions of teachers who want to join them at the school level. Um, and I know Rebecca Friedrichs has been instrumental in trying to pioneer, you know, actual teacher led unions, not like unions as special interests um, operating at a national political level, but perhaps, you know, unions led by teachers at the school level, um, is definitely less problematic. Yeah. So Clint mentioned, uh, ESAs. Could you guys go into a little bit about ESAs for the listeners and, and background on those and what you guys think about these types of programs, uh, and any other commentary on that? Uh, and then once you move from there, I have another follow-up question about what's your biggest pushback on the book? What have uh, opponents of your book come come to say about it or say about you guys or, or your ideas at least? So two questions, quick quick on ESAs and then hopefully if we can get to push back after that. Well, first uh, a word about the history of, of uh, ESAs, <clears throat> education savings accounts. They uh, were started here in Arizona and they were a creature of necessity. Um, school vouchers had been struck down. And uh, so the school choice proponents struggled to come up with a different uh, form of school choice. And the, the problem that the Arizona Supreme Court had with vouchers was that they could only go to one destination, and that was private schools. And we thought to ourselves, what if we had funding that went to the families that they could use in a whole variety of educational contexts, not just private school tuition, though it could be used for that, but also educational therapy, uh, tutoring, distance learning, um, purchasing discrete services from public schools, and on and on. And when we thought about that, we're like, why haven't we been doing this all along? This is exactly what a 21st century education funding system would look like because uh, it individualizes education for each and every family. So that's basically what ESAs are. A number of states have passed them. Um, a number of states have had serious obstacles to them, but we, we really love this system because it does make the consumer sovereign um, and it forces uh, providers, not just public sector providers, but private sector providers as well, to offer high quality products at a, at a low price that are highly personalized. And we have the technology to do that. So uh, this would simply enable families uh, to, to per 
purchase whatever educational services they wanted. And by the way, one of the things since the book has come, I, we even though this book is brand new, it was written before Pods, <laughs> the newest phenomenon. Yeah, what's that? What's a, what's a Pod? Right, exactly. And so there's not that word does not appear in our book. I'm I'm sorry to say, but ESAs would support that as well. Mm-hmm. So just following up on Corey's question, I think you know a pod is if uh, a group of students want to band together and essentially form their own mini school, um, and they could potentially hire a teacher or use uh, virtual learning or some combination of the two. And I mean, imagine if we had ESAs in place before that, there was this huge outcry that pods were not equitable because, you know, only rich students could use them. But the idea of an ESA is that, you know, it would be either means tested, which would mean that, you know, the lower income students could use it first or available to all, which would mean that there would be no issue of equity. So uh, it was it was kind of staggering during the whole pod debate. Uh, to think the late, about the latest in school segregation, I think the New York Times called it in the headline. <laughs> yeah, and it could have been so different if you know ESAs had already become mainstream. So, Clint, sure. Clint, you have some. You're you're based in Arizona, right? Um, yes. Uh, there's Prenda micro schools out there. Have you have you yes. um, been able to have any experience with with any families that have been using those kind of uh, schools or do you have any background of information on Prenda micro schools or other types not, of micro schools? Not as yet, but it's funny you ask that because one of my dearest friends started work there on Monday. So I hope to remedy that situation, <laughs> that <laughs> lack of direct contact uh, contact uh, in the very, very near future. Okay, cool. Yeah, we had Kelly Smith on the Educational Freedom Institute podcast before. He's the the CEO and founder of Prenda Micro Schools. And we know some people in our circles that are actually uh, family members that have used ESAs to access the micro schools uh, out oh, there. So, so it's a really interesting case study to a uh, state to look at uh, for looking at these kinds of reforms. So yeah, let's let's get to the pushback angle. Have, have you guys experienced pushback from the other side, either as you were writing this book or or after it came out have there any have there been any arguments levied against you guys or at least your ideas that you've had to either respond to or or that you'd like to respond to um here on the podcast so i i think one thing we were pretty intentional about when we were writing the book was to anticipate the main arguments that we would get um against choice um and so that section comes in one of the later chapters where we basically just lay out, you know, okay, school choice does not cherry pick students. Um, You know, here are the five main criticisms that people will levy against us. And I think Clint and I had just collected those after our, you know, years of (laughs) advocating for these ideas. Um, But I mean, we haven't, I at least haven't encountered any major pushback to date, but I feel like, you know, there will be union people who will be against it. There will be people who think that, you know, school choice siphons money from the public school system who are against it. But yeah, what's your response to that? School choice steals money and funnels money away from the public schools. And that's going to hurt students. What do you guys have to say to that? That's that, that is the main uh, argument that's made against school choice. 
You can keep going, Kate. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, you know, the main reason that is incorrect is that really what school choice does is leads to a more efficient allocation of resources. Um, and moreover, public schools are already hurting students uh, if the students are not succeeding there. And we have ample evidence that that is the case. So we should be less concerned about, you know, taking money away from buildings and more concerned about funding students. Um, and funding students will allow the students to go into schools or homeschools or alternative arrangements where they're more successful. Uh, and that should be our end goal, not that we have a certain pot of money in each building. I like yeah, it. I, yeah, that, the, I'll go ahead, Clint. Uh, the book is only two weeks old, <laughs> or yeah. actually a little less than two weeks old. So again, I'm knocking on wood. Uh, we haven't encountered a lot of pushback, but I was mentioning to Kate recently that there was a, a recent Atlantic article uh, that you probably, you guys probably read, uh, and it turned out to be a bit much ado about nothing, uh, but basically the, the theme was we should use this time to really think about how to reformulate our school system. I'm like, oh my gosh, these people sound like us. And basically the, the bottom line recommendation was holding more classes outdoors. I was so underwhelmed. But the number of reader comments that savaged that article were breathtaking. And I'm realizing there are a lot of people who may not like our book, who aren't who, who have a lot of spare time on their hands right at the moment. So I suspect that the uh, uh, that that the criticism will uh, eventually come. Well, that's that's good and and uh, good for now, right? Because, like you say, that could change, but um, and it probably will. You know, you'll. But but hey, that if people are paying attention and and reading, then that's not a bad thing. You know. So your your book just came out. And, you know, this past year has been pretty crazy uh, with the pandemic raging. And, uh, you know, a lot of the public schools have been kicking and screaming against reopening in person for so many for so many families. Is there kind of an intersection between things that you wrote about in the book and what's going on right now in the public school system? Absolutely. I mean, especially the inflexibility that just highlights, you know, every argument we make about the middleman and how schools are not able to, to, you know, adapt quickly in the face of changing circumstances. And that's not to say that there haven't been some innovative responses. I mean, South Carolina was really interesting in that they, you know, put Wi-Fi on public school buses and repurposed them and sent them into, you know, low income areas. And that's brilliant. But it's so much harder for that to happen when there are 13 layers of bureaucracy to go through. Well, and, and uh, Kate is absolutely right about that. There were, there have actually been uh, some school districts that have said, we don't know anything about virtual learning and hired online uh, uh, education organizations that have been doing it for decades and are providing a high quality education for all of their kids. That it, it just the last year or so underscores how we have to introduce flexibility into the system and allow greater transportability of resources. And what's interesting, I like that you guys point out 
um, a major part of your book to uh, you know to allow the public schools to have more flexibility because a lot of the, a lot of the people in the debate will say you know those people calling for school choice are just anti-public schools they want to destroy the public schools but what you guys are pointing out that you know one this could be great for teachers but it could also um, you know we also want to have a more level playing field by allowing the public schools to have that flexibility too in that competitive environment to actually, um, yeah, have the same kind of flexibility that private and, 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 and charter type of schools have. Yeah. And, and we've seen that on even here in Arizona on a, on a pretty significant scale, just with interdistrict choice. Um, no one, any child in the entire state of Arizona can go to any public school in the state of Arizona. And no sooner did that happen than um, some school districts uh, began uh, providing very tailored offerings, including schools for the arts. And of course, competition from, from charter schools helped in this regard as well. Um, and gifted programs and all sorts of other programs and other school districts did not. And the financial consequences have followed. So uh, the more of that that we can foster, uh, the stronger the, the public schools are going to become. Can you can you tell us more about because we it's not certainly not the most common, um, you know, response or reaction to school choice advocacy uh, because we've already said, and that's true, the, the most common um, argument against school choice is the funding. So, yes, that's number one. But probably in the top five is that you just want to destroy public schools. Like you said, Corey, that I hear that. I see that. I read that constantly. It's out there. Um, we don't know why. I've never been given a reason as to why anyone would want to do that per se. Um, but I'm curious, we have, we have two people here. We have two authors, co-authors here for this book. Um, tell us what your response is to that accusation or um, to that uh, <laughs> criticism. Well, for me, I, I have a pretty personal response and that is that, uh, uh, that I've raised four kids and not a single one of them has spent an, a single day in a private school. Um, I am personally committed to, uh, nor I, um, I never spent a, a day before college in a, in a public, in a private school. Um, and, you know, why would I want to destroy the system <laughs> that my kids are going to? Um, so I've got a personal stake. In fact, I used to, when I used to debate school vouchers a lot, I would often begin, even without knowing anything about my debate opponent, asking publicly, where do you send your kids to school? I'll tell you where I send my kids to school. And it was just incredible. The overwhelming majority of them sent at least one kid to private schools. As a lawyer, you're never supposed to ask a question you don't know the answer to, yep. but boy, was that a safe one. Uh, to ask. I believe that. Um, I believe that. But uh, but beyond that, you know, this is um, America's survival is at stake here. We are up against China, uh, which is the mo the greatest menace, you know, in the history of the world. They are cleaning our clocks educationally, and we cannot afford for that to happen. When we're looking up at the uh, uh, at, at Balkan nations, 
uh, in terms of educational performance. We've got to really get going. And I, you know, if people want to hurl uh, accusations, I think the last over the last year, uh, a lot of those accusations have become to begun to ring hollow when more and more people are seeing that the emperor has no clothes. We need uh, systemic reform, and we need it immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I we, totally agree with what Clint said, and I also went to public high school. I went to Catholic, uh, you know, college, and now law school. But um, I'm a product of the public system as well, and it worked for me. I don't think it works for every kid. Um, the kids <sighs> who I taught in Chicago, their neighborhood public school would not have worked for them, and they were fortunate enough to leave it. Um, so the idea is not about dismantling public school writ large. It's about getting kids into the schools or arrangements that work for them. I mean, just, just imagine if someone said that allowing families to choose their grocery store was anti-Safeway. It just wouldn't make sense. Like people would never make that accusation. It's like, what? You may even shop at Safeway and still like the freedom to be able to choose something else. So you're obviously not anti, I mean, it just doesn't, it's it's similarly like saying that, you know, allowing people to, to shop at or choose their grocery store defunds Walmart. But why would it defund Walmart? The money doesn't belong to Walmart. Similarly, that's, education dollars don't belong to, to buildings. Like to, 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 to bring up what Kate brought up earlier, I think that's the best response, right? Right. To reallocate the dollars from buildings and systems to students. And I think that's the, the best response, response to these types of ac- accusations from the other side. But be serious, Corey. I mean, you, you can't be comparing, honestly, you can't be comparing grocery. a grocery store to education. I mean, these are people. These are kids. Yeah, so let's do a higher education and pre-K as well because we, we, okay. we fund uh, Pell Grants and GI Bills and pre-K programs uh, where we, the money follows the, the child. So uh, what So what else uh, do you guys want to – I mean, we've, got, we've talked a lot about the book. Um, and, and how it relates to the current situation. I want, just for everybody, one more time. This is a, not, it'll be more than one more time, but uh, Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. I'm gonna share that in the comments again, make sure everybody get this. It's a new book. It's super relevant right now, um, especially with uh, what we're seeing with the public school system just having a really hard time adapting to uh, the, the, the individual the individual needs of so many families across the nation right now. It's just a super important book that everybody should should check out. But uh, Clinton, Kate, uh, what you know? What are you guys like? Final thoughts on on where we're at with this right now, and um, you know, maybe a, a last in, a closing statement or summary of of what you want us to to end on and what you want people to remember. Yeah, I was would just say that, you know, it was such a fun collaboration to write this with Clint, who has so much more experience than I do uh, in this field. Um, But the main takeaway that I hope is that parents will pick up this book and read it. Um, It's not written for policy people. Uh, We want, you know, parents to be able to read it and to be able to understand um, and hopefully to be able to lead the next generation of educational change. And and I would... um mentioned that one of the school districts we highlight in the book is New Orleans. And one of the worst things that ever happened in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. But out of that disaster came 
unbelievable progress in one of the nation's worst education systems. Uh, the, the last year has been a Katrina moment for the entire country with regard to uh, education. And kids, you know, my own daughter, uh, her school day now, entirely online, is uh, uh, 7.30 to 11.30, 30 minute classes for a 10th grader. And that's just, I mean, it's outrageous. We're gonna take such a giant step backwards this year. Uh, but I'm really hoping that the exact same thing will happen uh, as happened in New Orleans. And that is that we say, we seize the opportunity to say, how can we do things differently and not just at the margins? And I want to return the com compliment to Kate. Um, uh, with my day job, I, I would never have been able to write a book like this all by myself. So very, very grateful and hope that uh, she quickly becomes uh, the education reform superstar that you guys are. And so please keep up the work. Great work. Yeah, I want to say thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your new book. I want to tell the listeners, thank you guys so much for uh, listening to this conversation. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on pretty much any podcast platform you can think of if you want to check it out later. But uh, make sure you go and check out this book on the screen. I'll also hold it up. Uh, <laughs> Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. Uh, co-authored by Clint Bollock and Kate Hardiman, uh, two excellent uh, people who are on uh, the podcast today. So go check it out. I also put it into the comments. It's available on Amazon. It's a new book. It's super relevant right now. Uh, again, this is this is what we're going through with the K-12 education system right now. Families are scrambling. Public school systems in so many places are having a really hard time adapting, and that's not because of the intentions of the employees in the system. It's because of the regulations and the way that the system is set up. It's not the people. And there's a lot of ways to fix that, uh, which uh, these co-authors uh, go over in, in detail in the book. So I, I recommend it again uh, for everybody to go uh, check it out. Um, but again, thanks, Clint, and thanks, Kate, for, for coming out and joining us. Yeah, we thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, Corey, and thank you, Matthew, for, for having us. Re and please do keep up the good work. Awesome. All right. We until, appreciate next, it. Uh, until next time, everybody, that was the Educational Freedom Institute podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find EFI online at efinstitute.org on Twitter at EF underscore Institute and on Facebook at Educational Freedom Institute.